Well, good evening. It is a privilege to be with you again. And you can make your way in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. Uh, we're going to begin in verse 21. We're going to tonight be looking at the parable of the unforgiving servant. So we finished most of the parables in Matthew 13, so I thought we would move on to, <laughs> to the next one, which is in Matthew chapter 18. So Matthew chapter 18, starting in verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay... His master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Let's ask the Lord's help as we look over this text. Lord God, uh, we come to you this evening. We ask for your Help and your grace, O oh God. Lord, give us eyes to see our own debt to you. How large it is. Help us, Lord, as we deal with offenses and sins of others to us. Lord, things that may be painful to even think about, sorrowful, or, or cause us anger to even remember. Lord, help us in dealing with these things, in dealing with this truth that you bring to us here in this passage. Give us grace, we pray. 
In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so as we've talked about parables before, when you're approaching a parable, you want to say, okay, what's the main point of this parable? Don't get hung up on all the little details that may be in the parable, but think about what's the main point. And the second thing you want to do when you're dealing with a parable is pay careful attention to the context. What is it that's causing Jesus to tell this story? What are the circumstances? What is bringing it about? And so in Matthew chapter 18, uh, Jesus has been talking with his disciples. Well, the, the chapter begins with the question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus says, well, the humble are the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And then that begins a whole conversation about sin. Watch out that you don't cause others to sin. Right? Temptation to sin is going to come, but be careful. That doesn't mean you should not care about the temptations of sin. And then he talks about, in, starting in verse 15, how we should go about addressing those who sin against us. So look at Matthew chapter 18 in verse 15. Many of us know this, this section. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, then take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. All right, so Jesus gives us this process of dealing with a brother, a fellow Christian who has sinned against us. How we are to go about seeking reconciliation with that brother. And so it seems like this gets Peter thinking, right? Okay, so if that's the case, if my brother sins against me and I go to him and he repents and I'm, I forgive him, how many times am I supposed to do this, right? How many times am I supposed to go through this process before I say, ah, I'm done with that, right? We might think of the you know, baseball analogy, three strikes and you're out, right? Sin against me three times, and then I'm done with you. Well, Peter's a little more, you know, biblical, right? How about seven? That's a good biblical number, right? That's number of completion, right? Okay, well, Jesus, how about seven times? What if my brother sins against me seven times? I'm willing to go seven times and forgive him. And Jesus is like, Peter, I'm not impressed, <laughs> right? You think you're being generous, but I'm not impressed. He says, I know, I don't say seven times. Right? He, he pretty much takes Peter's number and then multiplies it by the nth degree. Right? Some translations will say 70 times seven or 77 times. The exact number doesn't matter. We get Jesus' point. His point is you forgive your brother as often as necessary. Right? Uh, look over in Luke chapter 17. Luke uh, summarizes this chapter in one, uh, one paragraph. Luke chapter 17. Uh, we'll start in verse 3. Pay attention to yourselves 
If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. It's not optional. You must forgive him. When, a, when your brother repents, when he realizes his fault, when he realizes his sin, comes to you and says, please forgive me, brother. I, have, I was prideful. I insulted you. I hurt you. I, I did this. I did that. Please forgive me. When he does that, you must forgive him. No matter how many times it happens. So having answered Peter's question... Jesus now tells this parable to drive the point home. Right? And that's what parables are really good at doing. They drive the point home. Uh, you might remember the time when Nathan the prophet came to David. Right? David's committed adultery with Bathsheba. He sent Bathsheba's husband off to war intentionally to get him killed. Essentially, he has murdered Uriah. Right? And uh, Nathan comes in, he doesn't come to David directly to confront him immediately. What does he do? He tells him a story, right? There was a rich man, he had all this stuff, and then he goes and takes the poor man's one little lamb that he had. With this parable, David says, that man deserves to die, and then Nathan turns around and says, you are that man. Right? A parable has a way of showing us truth and then grabbing us, right? Has like a, it's like a, when you're fishing, you know, you got the hook and the bait. The fish takes the bait, and then the hook sh grabs them. All right, so the same with this story. It draws us in. And then Jesus has a hook for us to show us how unforgiving we can be. So let's, let's walk through this parable uh, back to Matthew 18. So in verse 23, Matthew 18, verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. According to the ESV study Bible, 10,000 talents would be the equivalent of $6 billion today. And then if we add on recent inflation, it's probably even more than that. All right, six billion dollars. It's an astronomical amount that we can't even imagine how in the world you could borrow that much money and then spend all that money and not be able to pay it off. And then verse 25, since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold, along with his wife and children and all that he had, and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him his debt. So in the first part of this parable, we see it's meant to illustrate our astronomical debt of sin to God. And his great mercy in freely forgiving repentant sinners. Three things to notice in this first section. Number one, 
the enormity of the debt that was owed. As we said, something like $6 billion. Um, That illustrates the enormity of our sin. Your sin, my sin. Our sin against God is not a little thing. It's not a light thing. When we think of our own sins and faults, we have this this tendency to think, oh yeah, well, you know, yeah, a few minor things. I'm sure I've broken the law here and there. But Jesus wants us to see our debt of sin to God is is a mountain. Six billion dollars of sin. You have sinned so much debt, there is no way in the world you would pay that off. Our debt of sin is enormous. Number two, notice the one to whom the debt is owed. The servant owed this debt to the king. We have sinned against God, almighty God, our creator, our judge. We have offended the majesty of God, the king of the universe. Do you understand this? Do you understand your sin and who you have sinned against? You have sinned against God himself. Right? Even as we talked about David committing adultery, David murdering Uriah. But when he confesses his sin in Psalm 51, what does he say? He talks to God, he says, against you and you only have I sinned. All sin is against God. Whether we're we're worshiping other gods, whether we're committing idolatry, whether we're sinning against our neighbor, it's all against God. It's His law. And when we disobey that law, we sin against God Himself. The third thing we see in this first section, we see the mercy given. Here is a man who is kidding himself when he says, I'll pay it all back. No, you won't. No, you can't. Six billion dollars, you're going to pay that back and and you're broke at this point? There's no way you're going to pay this off. You're you're helpless. You You have nothing. But the king sees the pitiful condition of this servant. He hears his pleas for mercy and he completely forgives the entire debt. He doesn't say, all right, buddy, we'll get you on the easy payment plan. All right, we'll cut that debt in half. No, he says, you're forgiven. The debt is gone, done, blotted out, erased. In the same way, God is rich in mercy. God is ready and eager to forgive the sins and the offenses of all those who come to him in humble repentance. And this mercy is made possible through the work of Jesus Christ. Jesus came as our Savior, our Redeemer. Jesus lived a life of perfect obedience, perfect righteousness. And then he died on the cross to bear our sins, to make payment for our sin debt. Jesus bore the wrath of God against our sins. Jesus died under our curse. 
and then rose from the dead on the third day. This is the mercy of God. But first we have to see our sin. We have to see that we have sinned against God and that that sin is great. We have to see we have sinned against our Creator, our Lord, our Judge. And we have to see that His mercy is available through Christ. Then we come to the second part of the parable. Verse 28. But when that same servant, the guy whose $6 billion debt had just been forgiven, can you imagine, the, can you imagine how that would feel? Right? You're on the brink of ruin. You are on the brink of your, seeing your children sold as slaves and your wife shipped off and yourself gone into slavery, losing everything. You're on the brink of utter destruction. And the judge, the king says, I forgive you. How would you walk out of that building? Right? You would sunshine and lollipops and however that goes, I don't know. Right, you, you would be on cloud nine, so to speak, right? So the same servant comes, went out from being forgiven, and he found one of his, one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Now, the study, ESV study Bible says that's about $12,000, okay? Not, not a debt to sneeze at, right? I mean, that's a good chunk of money, but compared to six billion... That's hardly anything. So he comes to his fellow servant who owes him $12,000 and seizing him, one, some translations say, you know, choking him, grabbed him by the throat. Oh, no, there we go. And began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. Give me my money. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, right, just as this first man did with the king, pleaded with him, have patience with me, I will pay you. Verse 30, he refused. No, I'm not going to have mercy on you. I'm not going to have patience with you. And he went out and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. So in this second section, we see the three contrasts with the three things we just noticed in the first section. These are now all contrasted. So what do we see? We see, number one, the contrast of the one to whom the debt is owed. He did not owe the king. He owed a fellow servant, an equal. The debt is not owed to a superior, but to a fellow servant. One of the greatest hindrances to reconciliation is pride. Who do you think you are? Do that to me. Who do you think you are? You're a, a fellow sinner. You're not the king of the universe. You're not God. You're a fellow sinner. We must humble ourselves. And know that we are fellow sinners, fellow offenders, fellow debtors. When someone sins against you, they sin against a fellow sinner, a fellow debtor. Number two, notice 
the smallness of the debt in comparison to the first one. All right, six billion dollars, twelve thousand. The offenses of others against us, yes, they may sting, they may seem like a big deal to us, but we must see them in comparison to our own sins. We must see the offenses of others to us in comparison to our own sins against God and against others. It's not as big as we think it is. It is our sinful human tendency to magnify the sins of others and to minimize our own sin. This is what Jesus illustrates in Matthew chapter 7, verses 3 through 4. You know this illustration, right? Why do you, why do you see the speck in your brother's eye, but ignore the plank that is in your own eye? Right? We are so good at seeing specks, tiny uh, you know, flaws. But, um, my daughter Abby went to... Uh, was volunteered at Reformation Heritage Bookstore the other day, and she was saying some people will uh, take pictures of a book and send it, and look, there's a tiny imperfection. You know, please refund the money on this book, <laughs> right? We're so good at that, right? Oh, you sinned against me. You have this fault, right? It's right, no, hold still. It's right there, right? But then we have a plank of sin, a plank of pride, a two-by-four, of sin, and you're like, what? Don't judge me. Don't judge me. We're so good at that. Magnifying the sin that someone has done against us while ignoring, pushing to the side our own sins. And thirdly, notice the mercy withheld instead of mercy given. The mercy withheld. The final and the greatest contrast in this parable is that mercy was withheld. In spite of the mercy just shown to this servant, he refuses to show mercy to his fellow servant. Instead, he assaults him and throws him in prison. What a contrast. What a contradiction is an unforgiving, uh, un unforgiving Christian. Let me say that again. What a contrast is an unforgiving Christian. We might even call it an oxymoron. An unforgiving Christian? An unmerciful recipient of mercy? We who profess to have received and experienced the mercy of God to have been forgiven all of our sins, and then to hold bitterness, and to gossip, and to backbite, and to refuse to show mercy to another. It's a contradiction. And so then we come to the last part of the parable, which, which is going to give us our point, right? Here's the point of the parable, and then a, a severe warning that Jesus gives. Verse, starting in verse 31. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, 
you wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? There's the main point of the parable. Those who have been forgiven by God's mercy should be eager to extend mercy and forgiveness to others. Those who have received mercy, received forgiveness, should be ready, eager to give it, to extend it to others. Peter wants a number. How many times? How many times? Tell me how many times. Seven? Seventy? Just give me a number. Jesus says, no number. You've received mercy, give mercy. You've been a recipient of forgiveness, give it out. Extend it to your brother. As often as your brother or your sister sins against you, realizes their fault, comes to you and asks for forgiveness, you must extend it. So we see the main point in this parable is the necessity of forgiveness. You must forgive. It is necessary because, number one, it is commanded. It is commanded. We just saw that in Luke chapter 17. You must forgive them. Also, turn over to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12 and 13. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you so you also must forgive. Forgiveness is commanded. Our Lord commands us to forgive when our brother comes to us and repents. Forgiveness is commanded. Number two, forgiveness, as we saw, forgiveness is fitting. It is fitting. That's the point of the parable. It's fitting that the recipients of great mercy should show great mercy by forgiving those who offend them. When the forgiven servant is unwilling to show mercy, all the other servants say, that's not right. Something's wrong here. It's inconsistent. This guy was just forgiven $6 billion and he won't let go 12000 That doesn't fit. Something doesn't fit here. Forgiveness is fitting. It is fitting for a Christian who has received great mercy to give great mercy. Thirdly, we forgive because it is consistent with God's character and the new nature of the Christian. We saw that in what we just read in Colossians chapter 3, but we'll look at it again. It was in, let's see, verse 12. I'm sorry, verse 13. Bearing with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. 
Right? We see the character of God is merciful to those who repent, to those who come to him contrite, humbly, seeking forgiveness. He extends it. Look at one more scripture in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So again, we see that comparison. As God forgave us freely, as God forgave us lavishly, we are to do the same thing. And it's consistent with that new nature, right? We've been sealed by the Spirit of God, so don't grieve Him with things like bitterness and wrath and anger and, and slander. So, forgiveness is commanded, forgiveness is fitting, forgiveness is consistent with God's character and the new nature of the Christian. But then, we're going to come to probably what is the most difficult part of this parable. That last statement. Back to Matthew chapter 18. So, verse 33, you should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you. Verse 34, and in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So suddenly the debt is back in force. And the man will have to go to jail for that $6 billion debt. And then Jesus says in verse 35, so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. And my translation does not say, just kidding. He doesn't say that. I mean, here are some serious sober words. Jesus says, if you do not forgive your brother... From your heart, you are not forgiven. Wow. There's the hook. We took, we took the bait. Oh, yeah, forgive. Grace, we got to be merciful. And then suddenly, ow, what? If I don't forgive my brother, if I hold on to this bitterness, if, if my brother who has sinned against me comes and wants to be forgiven, is, is repentant and sorrowful, and I say, no way, Jose. No. I'm holding this bitterness. I'm holding this grudge. You're never, ever, ever going to be forgiven. Then the Father, Jesus says, the Father will not forgive you. What do, we, what do you do with that? What do we do with that? Well, let me find where I'm at in my notes. That's the first thing we've got to do. So, there's, this is, that's the shock of the parable. 
And this is not the only place that Jesus says such a thing. He said it also in Matthew chapter 6, verses 14 through 15. Right When Jesus taught the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts as we forgive those who sin against us or forgive our debtors. Let's jump over there. Verse 14 and 15. And then he ends his teaching on the Lord's Prayer by saying, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Same thing. If you will not forgive, you will not be forgiven. My goodness. So what do we make of this? Can we lose our salvation through unforgiveness? Or does our forgiveness of others somehow merit our own forgiveness? No. But here's the truth. Those who have been the recipients of God's mercy will give evidence of that mercy by extending it to others. Turn over to 1 John. 1 John, chapter 2, starting in verse 9. 1 John, chapter 2, verse 9. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. So, whoever, let's try this again. Whoever says he is in the light, whoever claims to be reconciled to God, whoever says, I'm forgiven of my sins, but yet hates his brother, does not forgive them, holds bitterness and unforgiveness against them, even though they're repentant, they're in the darkness. They're not born again. All right, so a, a, sign, a fruit of, a sign of our forgiveness, our reconciliation to God, our regeneration, is that we are merciful to others. That's the point Jesus is making. When you show mercy to others, you are bearing the fruit of that new heart. You are bearing the fruit of being forgiven by God. John Calvin wrote, when we forgive, we give evidence of that impression of God's seal upon us. We ratify confidence in our own forgiveness. Forgiving others is a mark of grace that distinguishes us as children of God rather than strangers. Forgiving is a mark of grace that distinguishes us as God's children. That's why this is serious. That's why this is serious. It's fruit, the fruit of our forgiveness. We can claim, we can think, we can assume, oh yeah, I'm saved, I'm forgiven. But is that fruit coming forth from us? Well, how do we deal with sins against us? How do we deal with offenses against us? We cannot celebrate forgiveness for ourselves and refuse it to our neighbor who humbly seeks it from us. 
So, the million dollar question then is, what is forgiveness? What does it mean to forgive? What does forgiveness look like? What is it not? And I'm going to try to, to go through this. I know we're taking probably longer than I usually do. But this is important. What is forgiveness? If forgiveness is required from us, if it is the fruit of salvation, if it is an evidence of our own forgiveness, what is it and what is it not? Jesus said in Matthew 18, 35, that this forgiveness must come from your heart. It must be sincere and true, right? Not a perfunctory, I forgive you, right? When you got your kids fighting at home and come on, make up, apologize. I'm sorry, I forgive you, right? That's not, that's not what Jesus is going after. He's not going after some words, but he's going after a heart disposition to the one who has offended us. So what does that look like? Forgiveness, here's my stab at a biblical definition. Forgiveness is when we sincerely resist all thoughts of revenge or malice towards our offender. But wishing them well, we pray for them and we are willing to do good to them and to live at peace with them as if they had never offended us. So two parts to that. The first, we sincerely set our hearts to resist all thoughts and intentions of revenge, bitterness, or malice towards that offender. And we saw that in Ephesians chapter 4. Turn back over there. Ephesians chapter 4. Verse 31, right? Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice, right? So when this, this brother or sister who has offended us, who has sinned against us, and they come to us and they say, please forgive me. I know I have wronged you. I know I have done that. I know I have hurt you. Please forgive me. We forgive when we, be, we resist thoughts and intentions and actions of bitterness and anger and slander towards that person, right? And I intentionally say resist thoughts, right? Because those thoughts are going to come, right? We're still fallen human beings. And, and some, I know, and I know this is a dangerous thing to talk about because I know there are, you know, sins that have happened to you that are horrible, horrible, painful, destructive. And this, that person may come to you and ask for forgiveness and you're thinking, okay, you know, I, yes, I, I said I forgive you, but again, you know, every time I, I sit down and I, that situation comes back to me, I, I, I'm bitter towards that person and I, have, you know, I think about that and, and it's hard to resist being angry. It's hard to resist being bitter towards that person, right? Just again, just because you're struggling with thoughts like that does not mean you haven't forgiven them, right? Temptation to sin is not the same as sin. We need to understand that. And so in the same way as just as, you know, think of this just as 
you know, you would resist any other temptation to sin. You know, thoughts, if, if thoughts of lustful thoughts come into your mind, you, you resist those thoughts, right? You say, no, I'm, I'm not going to think about that. I'm going to push my mind in a different direction. We have to do the same when we're coming to forgive a brother or sister who has repented, right? We have to fight those thoughts. We have to take those thoughts captive and say, no, I'm not going to think about that. I'm not going to entertain or fantasize about my anger towards that person. I'm not going to entertain the bitterness towards that person anymore. I've forgiven it. I've let it go. So it's a sincere, sincerely setting our heart and mind to resist the thoughts and intentions of revenge or bitterness or malice towards that offender, letting it go. And then in the positive, right, we forgive when we wish that person well. We pray for them. We're willing to do good to them and live at peace with them as if they have never offended us. We must be willing to give to that repentant offender all the services and the good that God commands us to give to our neighbor. They're still our neighbor. They're still perhaps our brother and sister in Christ. We still owe them things. We still owe them fellowship. We still owe them service, whatever good we can do, prayer. We still owe it to them. We can't say, well, yeah, I'll serve all the body of Christ except for that person. That's not being forgiven. And again, this, yes, this is a work, isn't it? It's a, it's a process. It's a process. A couple of things that I think it's important to understand that forgiveness is not. Forgiveness is not the absence of pain, grief, sorrow, or anger at sin's destructive consequences. Right? We can, we can truly forgive an offender and still be hurt or angry about the destruction that that sin has caused. We can. Forgiveness is also not the absence of disciplinary consequences. We can forgive someone, but there still must be sometimes a consequence, if fitting or if necessary. Right? If we have if there is a person who's committed a crime against us, we can forgive that person and still call the police and say, this is, the law has been broken, something needs to be done. All right, so again, sometimes we get this confused, right? If, if someone, uh, a leader in the church came forward and confessed, uh, God forbid, a molestation or something, we, you still need, the, it's mandatory that you report that. And the church can't say, well, we've forgiven him, so we're not going to report this to the police. No. <laughs> there are still consequences. There are natural consequences to sin. You can still forgive and still have consequences. Forgiveness does not always mean a full and immediate restoration to trust. Say a the church treasurer is found stealing funds. He confesses and he repents before the whole congregation. That doesn't mean he's restored to his position. 
trust still has to be, is, has still been broken. It still must be rebuilt over time. Oh, there's still more, but we're running out of time. Let me uh, close with this. How, how can we fight the temptation to be bitter and unforgiving? Because I think Jesus gives it to us in the parable. He shows us how, how can we fight this temptation? Right? And again, you ha- first of all, you have to realize that this temptation is a serious threat to your soul. Okay? I think Jesus, he made that clear with that last statement. You cannot live in continual bitterness and unforgiveness against a repentant brother or sister and feel comfortable with your own relationship to God. So, first, we have to work to get a better understanding and a better feel for our own sin and humble ourselves under that. That's what Jesus does in the first part of this parable. Peter, think about this, Peter. What do you owe to God? Humble yourself. Think about your own sin against God. Your own sin against others. Meditate on the first part of this parable. Consider the great debt of your own sin. Consider how small your offender sin is against you compared to your own sin against God. Consider that you have sinned against a holy God while your offender has only sinned against another sinful creature. Consider how God has freely sought you, sent Christ for you, heard your pleas for mercy, and has joyfully and freely received you in mercy. Impress Jesus' warning in this text upon your heart. Just as a person dealing with the temptations of, of lust or any other temptation that comes into their mind must deal seriously with himself, with that temptation. Just as, as a person who's tempted to deny Christ, tempted to, to sin, a grievous sin, has to take a hold of his own, you know, what do you call that? Collar. Take a hold of yourself. Say, really? Really? You want to you trade your eternal inheritance for this bowl of soup? Is that what you want to do? Self? Is that what you want to do, soul? You want to you trade eternity? You want to trade the glories of heaven for that moment of sin? Really? You've got, we have to deal with ourselves like We have to talk to yourself like this. Wake up, self. Really? You're going you're gonna to coddle this bitterness, coddle this offense, like drinking poison? No, we have to realize this sin is poison to my soul. How would you, how would you act if you walking down a path and there's suddenly a poisonous snake in the road? You're going to get down and pet it? No, you're going to run the opposite direction. Bitterness is a viper to your soul. Unforgiveness is a viper to your soul. Don't play with it. You have to impress that upon yourself. And then pray and confess to God. Confess 
your pride. Confess your struggle with bitterness. Confess these things to God. Come to the throne of mercy. Pour out to God your desire to change, your desire to be more merciful towards this person, less offended, not trying to avoid them. Plead with the Lord to help you, to change your attitude, to give you new desires, new love for those who have offended you. It's hard work. It's not easy. But we have the Spirit indwelling us. We have Christ empowering us. Let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, our, our debt is a mountain. Our sin is a chasm. Lord, but you swallowed that chasm up. You swallowed up that mountain of sin with the blood of your own son, with his death, with his agonies, with his resurrection. Lord, help us to see greater the sin that Christ has paid for. Help us to see greater the mercy that we have received. And Lord, help us. Because we live in this fallen world, we ourselves sin against others, offend and are offended against and sinned against, Lord. And sometimes these sins are unimaginable, painful. Lord, help us. Help us to forgive, to extend mercy as we have received mercy. God, we need your help. We are unable to do this in our, on our own. But Lord, you've, you've put within us the seed of your life, your righteousness, your spirit. Change our hearts, Lord. Empower us to love and to forgive that there might be unity and peace in your church, Lord, that our lights might shine, that our lives would not be a contradiction to our confession. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.